Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Ouellette. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundations and, like Judd, have served at the National Security Council, the U.S. State Department, and U.S. Senate Foreign Relations. This podcast is everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about South Africa, and we're joined by our friend Michelle Gavin, Senior Fellow for Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, and President Obama's National Security Council Senior Director for Africa, as well as former U.S. Ambassador to Botswana, so she knows the neighborhood. So it's safe to say the United States made some early errors in South Africa. It assigned its first ambassador to South Africa in 1929. And while it rhetorically opposed racial discrimination and later apartheid, officials viewed the South African government as a key ally against communism and an important training partner. It was reluctant, though, to impose penalties, and it viewed the ANC and other parties as communist and left-leaning. It designated Nelson Mandela as a terrorist. In the 1980s, this tension came to a head. While the Reagan administration pursued constructive engagement, a euphemism for not tackling the scourge of apartheid head-on, and wanted the South Africans to withdraw from Namibia, the U.S. public and some of Congress agitated for sanctions and boycotts. Eventually, Congress passed the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act of 1986 over Reagan's veto. And there's actually a famous clip of Senator Joe Biden arguing with Secretary Schultz over South African policy, and that is worth viewing. So after Nelson Mandela was released from jail and South Africa held its first democratic elections in 1994, the United States sought to deepen its partnership with Pretoria as they sort of came off the international blacklist. South African leaders have been regularly invited to the White House, and the country is viewed by the United States as an important voice on the global stage as part of the G77, the G20, and often serving on the UN Security Council. But in reality, there's often a mismatch between U.S. expectations and the reality of bilateral relations. There remains suspicion of the United States for its support for apartheid, and South Africans are very wary of U.S. global hegemony. There have been tensions over HIV-AIDS, especially under President Mbeki, and concerns over growing corruption under then-President Zuma. The U.S. and South Africa have a strategic partnership intended to signal the importance of the relationship, but the forum has struggled to gain traction. Meanwhile, the U.S. and South Africa often don't see eye to eye on approaches to foreign policy issues and crises from Iraq to Libya to Venezuela. You know, the U.S. takes note, amongst other issues, of systemic corruption and xenophobic violence and violence against women in South Africa, which remain real challenges, which is not to say that they don't in the United States. But this has continually been a point of contention when the United States has raised human rights in South Africa, given our flawed history. Some progress on that has occurred, particularly with this 2018 commission in South Africa that has done serious investigations all the way to the top of South African government in the former Zuma administration. And that's been backed by uh, current President Cyril Ramaphosa. So I think there are ways in which this relationship has the opportunity to improve, but it's been tense, I would say, at best. I sometimes like the phrase cordial, but not close. That sounds exactly right. Right? Frenemies, is that what the kids say? Or frenemies. You mentioned a whole bunch of failures, our support for apartheid, 
designating Mandela as a terrorist. Um, but I'll tell, I'll just name one success, and it's it's a little bit um, counterintuitive. But during the transition uh, from apartheid to multiracial democracy, the U.S. government was very eager in being involved in every step of the way. How can we help? How can we help? How can we be part of it, right? A little bit of that U.S. hubris of that we should be involved in everything. And President Bush reached out to Mandela and offered all sorts of mediation. And Mandela kept pushing him off and pushing him off. And eventually he said in one of these calls, how is Mrs. Bush doing as a signal to say, like, I'm not interested in this. And our ambassador at the time, Princeton Lyman, who is now deceased, really thought of himself as a partner, but not as leading the process, supporting the South Africans where they needed. And I think that that was a blueprint for how to do and engage with South Africa is be supportive, but not try to dominate the relationship. So with that, as a teaser, what should our strategy be towards South Africa, Nicole? Well, Judd, you said it. Engage, engage, engage. Visit. Give them their due. This is a country that should be recognized for its contributions, not just on the continent of Africa, but globally. They play at that stage. President Biden has had a long history in his foreign policy roles in the Senate, as well as in the White House, in engaging with South African counterparts directly. And I think that should continue. There's always going to be certain amounts of disagreement with South Africa, but this is a country that believes deeply in the importance of longstanding relationships, longstanding negotiations. And I think that's something that we need to respect and continue. There's absolutely damage control to be done from the last administration. And that's something that I think needs to be taken on robustly by those in government. There's no question there's an opportunity for support around COVID. As we all know, South Africa is facing really serious variant challenges and the impact of that all over the continent and everywhere else is huge, in particular because South Africa's medical system is so advanced, right? This is a country that did the first heart transplant. Their medical system is uh, impressive. And so for it to be struggling at this level, I think should worry all of us about what can happen. And we in the United States have just lived through that story, continue to live through that story. So I think there's cooperation there that's really critical. There is no question that South Africa's role as it relates to conflict in the world, whether their role on the Security Council related to all manner of challenges in the world or those closer to home for South Africa. We're talking here, for example, about electoral crises and human rights in Zimbabwe or this really challenging situation in northern Mozambique in which the U.S. government has designated ISIS in the region All of this has um, big stakes for South Africa and I think stakes for the United States. And so being able to really focus on fora for cooperation, again, even if we disagree, to be able to partner where possible to address these challenges is really important. I also think it's really important to look at some of the spaces where we haven't stepped in to support South Africa as frequently in recent years. So when it comes to education, support for young people, job generation, these are things that continue to be real challenges in South Africa. And in the past number of years, our assistance focus has not been in those areas in the way that it potentially could be. And I think we should look at what are the bilateral partnerships we could do that South Africa is actually excited about, right? We've tried to do military to military cooperation. That hasn't been super exciting to them. We've tried a whole bunch of different things, frankly, but really listening to what South African priorities are, the way that we can partner on that and the way that gets us the dividends to be able to build a relationship that can help in other parts of the world, I think is where we should be spending our energy. 
I've seen U.S. policymakers, administration after administration, get really frustrated with South Africa and then and then sort of opt out. And that's not the kind of relationship we have with India, which we can be frustrated with, or or any country in the world that's important. And South Africa is important. And we're going to have disagreements, as you said, Nicole, that isn't the reason to stop engaging. That's the reason to engage more and to treat this country as the powerhouse that it is. So, Michelle, now you have to figure out how we're going to do all of the amazing things that Nicole suggested. So if you were back running the NSC, the interagency, how would we actually have this kind of approach? It is challenging, in part because of that kind of mismatch uh, between expectations and reality that you described at the start. But I do, and I promise I will address process, but I do think now is a particularly important moment in the bilateral relationship because there are some kind of surprising parallels between the places our societies find themselves in, right? We're, we're both trying to mop up after a period of increasing corruption, sort of erosion of the rule of law, and we're both confronted by diminishing faith in public institutions, even in some cases in democracy itself. And there's great Afrobarometer data about uh, South Africans feeling kind of less invested in their democracy. They just want someone to make things work. So uh, I think that um, as important as institutionalizing relationships is, and I believe in it, and I can't believe I'm saying this, I think there's an element right now to a personal relationship at high levels between senior U.S. officials, between the president and President Ramaphosa, but, but other um, senior officials, because we're dealing with a very similar basket of issues. And both countries have a huge domestic agenda while they have the world clamoring for them to play a, a leadership role externally. So that's why those the point that Nicole made about visits, about engagement, about calls, really the, doing the very hard work of carving out time on principal schedules to build relationships, real ones that involve a lot of listening, not just calling up to deliver the talking points. The other thing I would say is that at the NSC, somebody's gonna have to make a real pest of themselves by kind of, bursting into every room when it's about climate change, when it's about global health, when it's about democracy and, and pushing back on authoritarianism, when it's about operationalizing these ideas we have about you know, corruption being sort of a, a tool authoritarians are using to erode a rules-based normative system. You know, we've got to burst in there and get South Africa in the mix and on the agenda for any kind of multilateral engagement and planning. And again, that's hard to do because you're adding to people's workload. So it's gonna take being pretty pesky. All right, so Michelle has underscored that the personal is political everywhere, including in the US-South Africa relationship. So Judd, no pressure, but do you have one big idea to put on the table? I do have one big idea, but it actually builds on what Michelle said. This is the time where we approach our partners with humility and ask to learn from them. And in no country is there a better example of dealing with racial strife and inequities and trying to deal with them, thinking about right-wing militias. And South Africans, I think this is where U.S. policy forget sometimes, South Africans are extraordinarily proud of their history and want to share that that history and that experience. That's the way they look at every problem globally is their own experience. And this is the time for us to ask the South Africans for help. 
What would they do in the United States to address our problems of the last four years or more accurately decades? I think that's a way to build the relationships that Michelle is talking about. And it's giving form to what the administration has been saying over and over again about humility and learning and listening. So that's my big idea. Michelle, you get the last question. You get your dream dinner party. You can invite any South African you want, dead or alive, to join you. Who is at the table? So I feel like this is an unfair question in the South African context, because who is not going to invite Nelson Mandela to their imaginary dinner, right? And what is wrong with that person? So I'm going to take two. Yes, I want Nelson Mandela in my imaginary dinner party. Of course I do. What a delight. (laughs) Um, But I'd also... You know, I think it would be amazing, since I can have um, people from the past, to have maybe Charlotte McClickley, who was this extraordinary woman. She actually started her bachelor's degree at Wilberforce in the U.S. She's a South African woman, of course, in the late 1800s, right, and finished her degree talk about a pioneer back to South Africa, where she had this extraordinary life of service. She was a teacher. She mentored parolees. She was an impassioned activist for racial equality, for women's rights. Remember, we're back, you know, we're back before women had the right to vote in our country. It's just extraordinary a life of service that always seemed to focus on young people, right, on their opportunities and kind of nurturing them. So wouldn't it be amazing to hear her reflections on the kind of trajectory of South Africa. She also knows our country, knew our country well, having spent time there. The trajectory of our country and and how we can invest in this amazing young generation of South Africans now uh, for a better future. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.